hppodcast.com. There are certain themes of which the interest is all-absorbing, but which are too entirely horrible for the purposes of legitimate fiction. These the mere romanticist must eschew, if he do not wish to offend or to disgust. They are with propriety handled only when the severity and majesty of truth sanctify and sustain them. To be buried while alive is, beyond question, the most terrific of these extremes which has ever fallen to the lot of mere mortality. That it has frequently, very frequently, so fallen will scarcely be denied by those who think. The boundaries which divide life from death are at best shadowy and vague. Who shall say where the one ends and where the other begins? Well, I mean, since Poe is just leaving that question open there, I'll be the one who says where life ends. Okay. I'm up for it. I'll do it. And right now, I am declaring everybody who's listening to this dead. What? (laughs) Yeah. Oh, no. I I can't keep this up. You're all alive again. Yay. (laughs) We're all gloriously alive and here at the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm the living Chris Lackey. We're here at (laughs) HPPodcraft.com. And Patreon. <laughs> we are joined this week by an old friend, but a new reader, Mike Hughes. You know Mike. Uh, I do know Mike. I've been pals with Mike for almost 20 years now. He's a very wow. funny guy. Uh, writes jokes for morning radio. I probably should have recruited him to punch up that stupid opening that I just did. <laughs> uh, Mike also produces, writes, and appears in Top Story Weekly at the Acme Comedy Theater in North Hollywood. So if you're in the L.A. area, you're visiting, go check it out. It's a sketch comedy about current events. Sunday nights at 8 p.m. Top Story Weekly, Mike Hughes, ladies and gentlemen. And what he read at the beginning were selections from the opening of The Premature Burial by Edgar Allan Poe, Mm -hmm. our last story of Povember. As the title suggests, it's all about being buried alive. Well, I gotta say, live burial is not something I think about often. No. But it seems that Poe did think about it a lot. (laughs) Clearly. But also, the thing is, everybody around Poe's time thought about premature burial a lot as well. Because it was sort of this idea that got stuck in the zeitgeist. Like, people were really anxious about being buried alive. It was like all the papers. It got reported a bunch of times. Like, there was a sensationalist kind of... Yeah, yeah. That's what people were excited about. I mean, there was even this organization called the Society for the Prevention of People Being Buried Alive. Like... (laughs) There was a group of people that were so worried about it that they started a club and people joined this club because of this concern. I guess maybe this, because this is in the early 1800s, that people were starting to realize that maybe when they dug up Mrs. Johnson and her coffin was all tore up from the inside, that she wasn't actually a vampire. Right. But she was buried alive. Buried alive. It's, It's going over my head. All through this book. Buried alive. You had to do it. I had to do it. I I have definitely put in some time thinking about being buried alive and and fearing it. Mm -hmm. It's funny you say Poe thought about it a lot. This isn't even the first buried alive story we've done this month. No. Ask of Amontillado was a guy being entombed (laughs) alive. But for people at Poe's time, as you say, it was a big concern, and he was exploiting that with this story. So he probably had his own fears about it, but I think also he went, hey, if I write something about this, I could cause a sensation. Eat it up with a spoon. They're going to love it. Uh, and I wondered if it was just sensationalism, mm-hmm. you know, this fear. So I, I looked up some statistics. In the 1840s, do you want to guess what the actual percentage of people being buried alive was? Hmm. Take a Just take a stab at it. 2%. 100%. 100% <laughs> of people buried in the 1840s 
We're wow. Crazy. I know. Yeah, that's... I wrote it down here, and I'm looking at it, and it's written down right here. So Okay, there you go. That's, I guess that's it's true. statistic, yeah. No, I'm sure that in a time of less medical precision, it would happen more often than maybe it does these days, but yeah. I, it probably is a very small percentage. You mentioned that organization, too. I'm curious, you know, the Society for the Prevention of People Being Buried Alive. What were those <laughs> meetings like? I mean, was it like a stuffy thing where they came in, everybody had new designs for safety coffins, or was it more like a metal detecting club where everybody just kind of runs out into the field like, we're going to go to the cemetery and see if we can find some people trying to claw out of their graves? (laughs) Guys, I think I hear some muffled shrieking over here. Come Oh, no, it's just some bottle caps. Maybe they were like getting together and strategizing policy to push on politicians to make the laws of burying people more friendly to the potential of being buried alive? (laughs) I I don't know. Oh, you think they were like a lobbyist group? Yeah. (laughs) That politician's in the pocket of big buried alive... I don't know. <laughs> Premature Burial was published in 1844 in the Philadelphia Dollar Newspaper. Wow, that sounds expensive. Yeah, I know. That is a kind of pricey for a newspaper. I only read the story in comic book form when I was yeah. a kid. This was my first time reading the actual story. Mm-hmm. And I'd forgotten all about the very clever twist at the end of it. <laughs> uh, I got to say, this one is not as good as the other uh, posters. No, it's kind of a stumble for Poe, in my yeah. opinion. But let's uh, let's get into it. Yeah, let's talk about it. So the story begins with the unnamed narrator talking about premature burial, exactly what's on the tin. Just listing a few instances of these burials, but then getting into very specific stories. He introduces the topic in an interesting way, though. He says that writing fiction about really horrifying things could be very offensive to an audience. Mm -hmm. Uh, But when these things have actually happened or are based on truth, like the great earthquake in Lisbon, which killed so many people, or the plague in London, then the writing can be useful and the reader can experience what he calls pleasurable pain. Mm. I I was wondering, do you think there's truth to that? If somebody really concocts an awful scenario in a film like this torture porn kind of stuff, it kind of puts you off. You go, why are you imagining something so awful? But if it's something that maybe actually happened to somebody, then you're a little more like, well, a human did experience this. So I, I, I guess it's at least I can learn something by watching it or reading about it. Yeah. Texas Chainsaw Massacre. They tell you at the beginning, this is based on real occurrences. This right. stuff actually happened to some teenagers. That always seemed to me a technique to kind of, because obviously it's it's based on a number of things, but yeah, That technique is to give it the sense of realness that you're going to feel throughout it as if it's more documentary than fiction. But I think also it's playing to what he's saying here, which is I can't just show this family eating people and cutting them up with saws and beating on them and have people think I just came up with that stuff. They'll put me in jail. Oh, but if yes, I say yes. that it's based off of something that actually happened, now I can show you a whole range of terrible things. I didn't do these things. I'm just reporting on them. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. okay. Sure. And of course, more unsettling than these great tragedies he describes in that opening paragraph, uh, like the earthquake in Lisbon, there are horrible things that happen to individuals. And he says, the ghastly extremes of agony are endured by man the unit and never by man the mass. You know, things that happen to you only personally are far worse than things that happen to a great number of people. Yeah, of course. And the most unspeakably terrifying event that a single human being can undergo is to be buried alive. That's what his thesis is. Yeah. And we can talk about it because it's happened many times after mysterious diseases rendered living persons seemingly lifeless, rigid, dead. Mm-hmm. And so now Poe's going to get some of those examples to us. Our first story takes place not long ago in Baltimore. The wife of a congressman got sick with a strange illness after a painful bout of this malady she died or at least uh, seemed to die they say that she looked dead her skin was sunk in she was cold to the touch but they didn't bury her for three days and said that her body got rigid almost like a rigor mortis and then they finally buried her in the family vault 
three years go by. Now they're opening it up again to add a new coffin. Somebody else has died. When the husband goes to open the door, uh, down falls a white closed corpse right into his arms. It is the body of his wife in her death robes. After the investigation, they deduced that after two days of entombment, she awoke. She struggled in her coffin, causing it to fall off the shelf and onto the floor where it broke open and she escaped. Now there was a lamp that was left in the tomb by mistake, and then they noticed that all the oil was gone out of it, so they think that she turned the lamp on and was able to see what was going on in there. She looked around to try to figure out a way to escape from this place, and she took a bit of the coffin, what they think, and she banged on the iron door with the wood trying to get somebody's attention. Mm -hmm. While she was banging on the door, maybe she swooned or she passed out or something was wrong with her, but anyway, she fell onto the iron work of the door and her clothes hooked on there, so she stood there dead and <laughs> fell down when her husband opened the door. It said, thus she remained and thus she rotted erect. It's a little horror effect he's really trying for here, you know? Yeah. He's opening the door. Ah! It's right there. So somehow this set itself up perfectly just for that effect. But that's a little less like being buried alive. That's a little more like just being imprisoned and starved out, you know? Yeah. I also thought that this story was going to get a lot darker when they go to look at the other bodies. They've all been eaten. You know, what did she do to sustain oh, herself right, while she yeah. was imprisoned in there? But it didn't go there, so probably Poe didn't have something real to point to, so he couldn't say that's too horrible. No. The next tale takes place in France in 1810. This young French woman who was pretty and rich and from a good family was looking to get hitched. Uh, this journalist guy who was poor and not from a good family was really into her and she was pretty into him as well, but her family wasn't into him because he was poor. So they pressured her into marrying this rich guy. The rich guy treated her badly. She died a few years after their marriage. She was buried in the ground. The journalist, still in love with her, goes to the cemetery and digs up her body. As you <laughs> yeah. do, I sure. guess. Mm -hmm. That's something that happens. It says, with the romantic purpose of disinterring the corpse and possessing himself of its luxuriant tresses. So he wants her hair. Yeah. He's digging up her body to cut her hair. That right there is the creepiest thing in this whole story. Agreed. That is super <laughs> creepy. I was trying to think, what's wrong with this guy? But then I'm thinking, okay, well, these days, you know, this lover, he'd be able to creep on her Instagram account. Sure. Or he would even have a bunch of photos of her on his phone to treasure. Even if it was 50 years ago, he might have one or two pictures that he could look at. Yeah. In 1810, there's no photos. No. And if there's no painting or miniature likeness of this girl, he's got zip to remember her by. So time to start digging for hair, I guess. <laughs> That's the only thing you can do. <laughs> I just think it, it was because we didn't have iPhones yet. That's why. Uh, yeah, that's that's probably the only reason that the that only happened. Reason. And not right. because he was a total creep. <laughs> After he dug up her body, started to cut her hair, and then he got caught. But as they were dragging him away, her eyes opened. He went to her. And I guess they let him take her away, which seems pretty bizarre to me. But he took her to his lodgings and then she got better. So they decided not to tell anybody that she's alive. Right. And the journalist and this woman, they moved to America. 20 years later, they figure, well, she looks significantly different now. So we could probably go back to France. But when they do, her ex-husband somehow sees her. I mean, France is a big country. Couldn't they just go to another part of France? <laughs> I don't know. But anyway, her ex-husband recognizes her and sues, takes him to court to have her back because, mm. you know, back then women were property. So, yeah. so the courts say that since she was dead and 20 years have passed that, you know, they'll let her stick with the journalist and that's the end of the story. But again, I thought it was going to go a different way. I thought the courts would, would say, well, you got married and you guys never annulled this, so you have to 
stick with your abusive husband and it would be a wah-wah. But, you know, oh, I was yeah. glad she got to stick with her lover. But when you think about it, that was probably the wrong ruling on the part of the courts. Otherwise, using this precedent, if I want to get out of my marriage, all I have to do is die for a few years. <laughs> like that little stunt I pulled at the beginning of the of the show when I declared you all dead. Uh-huh. Great. Uh-huh. It's good that I declared you alive again, but now none of you are married anymore. I'm sorry. I didn't oh, mean to do that no. to you. But yeah, based on this precedent, you're all single. <laughs> Oh, I got to go explain that to Rachel? <laughs> yeah, go explain it to her. Oh, I wanna, man. Can you record it when you explain it to her? Because I want to hear that conversation. <laughs> Here's the thing. We'll first sit down and read this story. I'm going to read the story. Take, pull out a gun. Read the story. I'll be out here with my gun. <laughs> okay, you know that part with the court case and the abusive husband? Right. Well, I died for a few minutes. Chad told me I did. We got to go get hitched again, unless you don't want to, man, because now we have, you know, we have options. <laughs> Deals off. Again, what kind of bugs me about this story is that she was cool with this dude digging up her body. Well, yeah. That is weird. <laughs> he saved her life. Yeah. If I was like this woman, you know, that was into me and I had a relationship with her. And then I was with this loser lady, yeah. and then I died. And then this girl that I kind of went out with three years ago mm-hmm. was like, oh, yeah, I was digging you up so I could get some of your hair. Right. That's, <laughs> see, that's the problem with your story. I don't think he was honest. But I think what a, what a great comedic scene if, you know, he's got the scissors out. He starts cutting, and then she opens her eyes and goes, what are you doing? And he's like, oh, oh yeah, I heard some rustling, and I knew you were alive in here. So he's like, put the scissors back in his pocket. I Just rescuing you. He probably lied to her about it. He must have lied to her. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. So the next story is of an artillery officer who was thrown from his horse. He was, uh, His head was hit. He was insensible afterwards. Yeah. Uh, so they bled him. Well, they did some trepanning as well, which is where they drill a hole in the skull. To relieve pressure or oh, yes. let goblins out. I don't know why they why they do that. Oh, they would do that with swelling in the brain to relieve pressure. Right. There are some practical reasons, right? Like, yeah. But then he says many other of the ordinary means of relief were adopted. And I thought, I don't know what's ordinary means of relief in the 1840s. I really wish Poe <laughs> would spell it out because that kind of pre-modern medicine is really fascinating to me. You know? Oh, yeah. Many other forms of relief were tried. We, we punched him in the right knee and put a weasel in his underwear, which he did <laughs> not respond to. <laughs> Luckily, there was a specialist available to bring in a drawing of the devil. I know we talked about this before, but I don't know if we talked about it on the show, the origin of, of blowing smoke up someone's ass. <laughs> yeah, you told me about it, but we definitely didn't cover that on the show. It, that is some fascinating stuff. That is amazing. So what they did when somebody had drowned, <laughs> <laughs> they took a bellows, like a, you know, one of those little squeegee accordion-like things. Yeah. Filled it with smoke and stuck right. it up somebody's bum mm-hmm. and squeezed to get smoke up their butt because they thought that that would resuscitate them. Well, one, I, Why? <laughs> the nicotine in there that was was a stimulant. Oh, it's like it's like cigarette smoke. It's not from the. You know, it was cigarette smoke exactly. Oh, yeah, and okay. it would go up their bum to get into their blood system quicker. Uh huh. Because you know, if you put alcohol in your bum, you'll get drunk instantly because the the lining inside your I do know what you mean yeah yeah the medical practice go look it up <laughs> it's amazing like there was there were even these specifically made bellows i don't know why they thought it was for drowning people that had drowned yeah they had them in london <laughs> Like right along the Thames. Oh, like stations? Yeah, like little stations with these things that you could light up a cigarette, fill it up with this thing, and stick it up some poor person's... Oh, you actually have to... Yeah, see, I'm trying to figure out... God, I would love to see that episode of Baywatch. (laughs) Help, I'm drowning, quick. Guy runs down, smoking a cigarette, blowing it. Get his ass out here. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Now, how did that that evolve into the... Because now when you say you're blowing smoke up someone's ass, 
It well, means that you're complimenting them, although you might necess- you're probably not sincere about it, right? Yeah, I think where it came from, like, or how that phrase has come, is because people realized that that didn't actually do anything good. Oh, by you saying, "Well, you're not look, I'm not blowing smoke up your ass," means look, I'm not doing something that's completely useless. Right. I mean, I guess it's so funny. I mean, do you think even uh, somebody was like, "Well, that doesn't do anything." Well, it shows me that you care. <laughs> <laughs> You know, doesn't do I was swimming and I, I went out to that beach ball and I was really suffering when I came back. No smoking my ass at all. Honey, it doesn't do anything. Well, tells me how you feel about me. Could at least, you know, as a symbol, it's just kind of neat uh, when people do that for each other. <laughs> that's love, man. Back to this artillery officer yeah. who got hit in the head. His condition is worsened <laughs> and he dies, or of course seems to die, and they bury him in the local cemetery. It says he was buried with indecent haste in one of the public cemeteries. I like that adjective, indecent haste. Three days later, a peasant hears some sounds coming out of the grave, and so they dig it up. While sitting upon the grave of the officer, he had distinctly felt a commotion of the earth as if occasioned by someone struggling beneath. Can you imagine? <laughs> that would be so scary. <laughs> it really would. I'm a big Return of the Living dead fan i like the zombies popping up out of the earth but i mean if i was sitting it because i think it was a busy day that day and lots of people were in the cemetery and he's yeah you're just sitting there having a sandwich waiting for some funeral to end and then boom, <laughs> someone starts tickling you first they we find out that he wasn't buried deep it was a super shallow grave and the earth also was piled on very very loosely so this allowed air to get in and he was able to breathe Right. When they find him, he's sitting nearly upright in the coffin, having partially pushed the lid away. Mm. And they get him to the hospital. He's declared still living, though no longer married, I would assume. And he's, uh, <laughs> he's But he's pretty messed up in this experience. Yeah, yeah. But eventually he does get better. But then he fell victim to the quackeries of medical experimentation. The galvanic battery was applied and he suddenly expired in one of those aesthetic paroxysms, which occasionally it superinduces. I can't believe he survived all that just for them to electrocute him on a, you know, whatever their theory, whatever their dumb theory was. Yeah. It's played for comedy there, I think, a little bit. Yeah. But it is, a, it's, it is like when you hear about somebody escaping one tragedy only to end up in another, right? It's yeah. just crazy that somebody survived this plane crash and then they happen to be on this other flight yeah. that plane crashed, you know. Your stories about that all the time. So this galvanic battery brings us to the next story from London in 1831. This guy, an attorney, died from typhus, but didn't, obviously. So some medical people wanted to check out his body for research and the family, they declined. So the doctors were like, oh no, that's cool. We'll just hire some grave robbers to get us the body and you won't know anything about it. Three nights after the burial, some grave robbers dig up the body and they drop it off at the hospital. The doctors cut into the body and they see that there's no decay. So they decide they're going to apply the battery to the corpse. It reacts a bit. So then they tried some different experiments into the night. They were just trying out different stuff to see what was going on with this guy, but nothing was working. The doctors were like, you know what? Actually, we're pretty sure he's dead. Let's just cut him up. And this medical student goes, no, no, I got an idea. Let's shock his pectoral muscle. And then they do. This causes the body to sit up and then he jumps onto the floor and then he says something incomprehensible and he just falls. Right. So this time the electrocution worked. Yeah. (laughs) So the doctors, when they see this, they're just standing there totally freaked out. And then they decide, oh, yeah, we better help this guy. The attorney, he lived. How do they explain this? These doctors that they've got this dude's body. Yeah, they don't they don't tell any of his friends that this has happened until they're sure he's not going to pass away again. Right. Then once. Once they are sure he's okay. Their wonder, their rapturous astonishment may be conceived. Sure. Not really a satisfactory answer to me that they're like, 
oh, he's not dead. We buried him. Remember we had that whole funeral. Mm-hmm. How did you guys figure out he was? <laughs> oh, you know. Ah, we cut into him a little bit, shocked him a few times. He just started dancing around. So, yeah, here you go. But I don't think Poe's really curious about those things. What he's worried about in this story is this. It says, The most thrilling peculiarity of this incident is involved in what Mr. S. himself asserts. He declares that at no period was he altogether insensible, that dully and confusedly he was aware of everything which happened to him, from the moment in which he was pronounced dead by his physicians to that in which he fell swooning to the floor of the hospital. Uh. I am alive, were the uncomprehended words, which upon recognizing the locality of the dissecting room, he had endeavored in his extremity to utter. Mm. That is a terrifying idea. Yeah, Most people have probably wrestled with, even if I am dead, what if I continue to perceive everything that's happening around me? Yeah. Which is pretty terrifying. With these examples, I think Poe, the first one is a very external thing. We see evidence of a struggle that happened, but we see that evidence three years after. And then we move into another where it's a little more extreme, but we're still on the external. And then for this last one, we get the internal perspective of what it's like to be buried alive. So I think he constructs these in the sequence on purpose. Yeah. First we see evidence, then we feel it happen, and then we're in the mind of somebody it happens to. So now it's time for him to finally say, this is what happened to me. So this is the narrator's story. It may be asserted without hesitation that no event is so terribly well adapted to inspire the supremeness of bodily and of mental distress as is burial before death. The unendurable oppression of the lungs, the stifling fumes from the damp earth, the clinging to death garments, the rigid embrace of the narrow house, the blackness of the absolute night, the silence like a sea that overwhelms us, the unseen but palpable presence of the conqueror worm, these things with the thoughts of the air and grass above, with memory of dear friends who would fly to save us if but informed of our fate, and with consciousness that of this fate they can never be informed, these considerations, I say, carry into the heart which still palpitates a degree of appalling and intolerable horror from which the most daring imagination must recoil. We know of nothing so agonizing upon earth. We can dream of nothing so hideous in the realms of the nethermost hell. What I have now to tell is of my own actual knowledge, of my own positive and personal experience. You know, I don't agree. Hmm? I can think of a lot of worse ways to die. Than being buried alive? Yeah. Uh, I don't know, man. Yeah, I'm sure if you really put your mind to it. I guess it's, you know, there is obviously more physically painful ways to go that would be slow and horrible. Yeah. But this is just kind of a, it's a mental, a terror. I mean, I've told that story before on the show about how when I was a little kid, I saw a scene from that show Cliffhangers. Yeah. In the the Count Dracula section. And somebody was buried alive and it scared me so bad and then when i rented the show like 30 years later and watched it i had remembered it exactly perfectly it scarred me that bad wow it's it's the claustrophobia the ultimate isolation of it too the fact that you're down there and nobody knows you're there and you're suffering yeah Ugh. but you're right probably if you put your mind to it you, you would have a few moments to kind of think about well not moments like maybe an hour <laughs> oh, to th- just think about your situation your life reflect oh, God. and i guess it just becomes very warm and hard to breathe, and then you pass out? 
You're giving me panic attacks by even talking about it. <laughs> it's, it's horrible. Well, no, I'm you, not even kidding. For you, yes, I can see it being a very terrible, oh, God. terrible thing. But of course, I feel like I can easily think of ways I would that are much more horrific than uh, being buried alive. But let's not get into that. Yeah, let's not get into that. Uh, he describes his condition a bit, uh, his catalepsy. Right, right. He's got this, he's got the, the worst condition you can have if you're afraid of it. His friends and family know that he suffers from this ailment and they know not to bury him. Right. Catalepsy, I mean, it's the kind of thing where sometimes somebody who's cataleptic, it'll be a day or two, maybe even an hour or two, sometimes as long as weeks or months where they will, to all appearances, seem dead. Yeah. Their metabolism just slows down so much. Nobody really knows why it happens, but when it does, you're obviously at high risk of getting stuck in the ground. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. you know, if I had this condition, I would have a medical bracelet or a necklace or a tattoo, and it would all be flamboyant as f- There's <laughs> no way I would ever let... I mean, telling your friends and rigging up things, that's one thing, but I would make sure that I had it printed on my chest do yes. not bury me <laughs> so the narrator's own issues with the disease have him uh, swoon for a bit before going all catatonic mm-hmm. other times he'll just feel kind of sick or numb chilly and then dizzy and then he would fall so for weeks he would have no awareness of what was going on despite his condition he's in very good physical health yeah except for this he's he's doing pretty good he he does have some general sleep issues which sound a little like sleep paralysis to me Right. It says, upon awaking from slumber, I could never gain at once thorough possession of my senses and always remain for many minutes in much bewilderment and perplexity. This illness kind of makes him God. <laughs> he says here, my fancy grew charnel. I talked of worms, of tombs, of epitaphs. I was lost in the reveries of death and an idea of premature burial held continual possession of my brain. Mm-hmm. This obsession holds him in constant fear of being buried alive. It fills his mind day and night. He dreams about it. His night, well, they're really nightmares. Yeah. Uh, one in particular, he's asleep. A cold hand touches his forehead and says, arise. And he sits up in total darkness trying to figure out what's going on. And the hand grabs him by the wrist and the voice tells him to arise again. So the narrator asks him, who's there? And he says, I have no name in the regions which I inhabit. I was mortal, but I am fiend. <laughs> I was So this is death, I presume, that's showing him so. around. But I didn't know death used to be human. No, I don't know either. It's like a ghost vampire. But basically, it shows him around the cemetery. And in the cemetery, he sees everybody that's buried there. And many of them are restless. So clearly, a lot of them have been buried alive. Oh, and uh, he's in his own catatonic state or cataleptic state or whatever it is. And uh, right. it's just it's a horrible nightmare that he has over and over. Yeah, these nightmares happen at night, but they often affect him during the day because mm-hmm. he's just like a bundle of nerves. And he starts to doubt his friends. He thinks that, oh boy, I bet you they would screw things up and accidentally bury me alive. (laughs) He also fears that he might become catatonic and then just never wake up again. Mm -hmm. And then his friends would get rid of him because he would be a burden of responsibility just having to take care of a catatonic guy. And then he has a long list of things for people to do when they think he's actually dead. Uh, So number one, don't bury him until he is obviously rotting. Two, put him in a coffin with a latch that he can open from the inside with little effort. Three, the door to the tomb should also be able to be opened from the inside with a little effort. Four, the tomb would have food and water. Five, the tomb would also have air and light. And six, a rope should be attached to a bell that he could ring that's easily accessible. So even with this stuff, things can still happen. He says, what avails the vigilance against the destiny of man? Not even these well-contrived securities suffice to save from the utmost agonies of living inhumation a wretch to these agonies foredoomed. 
Imagine how annoying he is to these friends of his. Oh, my God. I, and I bet he even knows he's annoying them, but he can't yeah. stop himself. He, God, he always brings up the precautions. <laughs> okay, we're going to do it. Quit bringing it up. Leave you a sandwich. We get it. Finally, he finds himself in, a, in the situation he so desperately fears. He comes out of what he believes to be an episode. Slowly, he feels he's in danger. He feels so afraid that he's buried alive that he can't even move. He doesn't even want to open his eyes, but when he finally does, he's in complete darkness. He tries to scream, but again, the fear has gripped him. He can't move at all. He does feel that he's lying on a hard surface, and he reaches up and he feels wood. And it's just a few inches above him. He knows he's in a coffin. He tries to push up, but it doesn't budge. He reached out for the bell rope, but of course it's not there. He thinks he can smell moist earth. As this awful conviction forced itself, thus into the innermost chambers of my soul, I once again struggled to cry aloud. And in the second endeavor, I succeeded. A long, wild, and continuous shriek or yell of agony resounded through the realms of the subterranean night. Hello? Hello there, said a gruff voice in reply. What the devil's the matter now, said a second. Get out of that said a third. What do you mean by yelling in that air kind of style, said a fourth, and hereupon I was seized and shaken without ceremony for several minutes by a junto of very rough-looking individuals. They did not arouse me from my slumber, for I was wide awake when I screamed, but they restored me to the full possession of my memory. (laughs) So, wait, I think this is supposed to be funny, is it? Is it supposed to be funny? I, I, I don't know. But it's pretty ridiculous. It's like this guy goes, oh, I remember. I'm on a boat. Right. <laughs> oh, yeah. Because it seems he and his friend uh, were traveling by boat, and there was only the small berth that was available. He goes to sleep in it, and he has a nightmare, and he forgets where he was, and he has a freak out, and he annoys the other sailors. Right. Of course, this earthy smell was just from the load that the ship was carrying. Yeah. But this moment, it freaked <laughs> him out so much that it kind of made him come to grips with his condition. My soul acquired tone, acquired temper. I went abroad. I took vigorous exercise. I breathed the free air of heaven. I thought upon other subjects than death. I discarded my medical books. In short, I became a new man and lived a man's life. From that memorable night, I dismissed forever my charnel apprehensions, and with them vanished the cataleptic disorder of which, perhaps, they had been less the consequence than the cause. There are moments when, even to the sober eye of reason, the world of our sad humanity may assume the semblance of a hell. Alas. The grim legion of sepulchral terrors cannot be regarded as altogether fanciful, but they must sleep, or they will devour us. They must be suffered to slumber, or we perish. And that is the end of the story. That's it. Because of that experience. Now, yeah, it was funny to me because... He's like, oh, I remember now. I, I went to sleep in a thing that's exactly like a coffin. I mean, you would just think this would be something this guy would never do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like, I, I'm just going to crawl in here and go to sleep. It's just like a coffin. That'll be fun. I'm sure because I don't know what's going on ever when I wake up. I'm sure it won't scare me at all. Yeah. This has an interesting message at the end, though. Poe is saying dwelling on morbidity, dwelling on fear 
will actually cause physical illness as yeah. well as, you know, ruin your ability to enjoy your life. Mm-hmm. If you're in, incessantly focused on things that could go wrong. Yeah. Um, it's, there's a self-fulfilling prophecy there. I think that there's some kind of interesting truth to that. And it was, I actually didn't expect it. Yeah. So the twist ending I thought was kind of dumb, but his conclusion in this was, I thought was pretty cool actually. Yeah. Very life affirming, which is something Poe usually isn't. Yeah. But Poe died young. Wasn't he 40 when he died? He was 40. Yeah. Yeah. Man, he had a rough life because the pictures of Poe that I've seen, he does not look 40 years old. Yeah. He looks like Bill Murray now in those, (laughs) in, in those photos when he's like in his 20s. Yeah, it was surprising. It doesn't have the the power of the other Poe stories. It doesn't seem as well constructed. Felt like this was a little bit more sensationalistic. Yeah, I, I didn't feel that it had the tight story construction of the other things that we've looked at this. Morning. No, it was less of a narrative. And just here's some examples. And then here's a funny thing that happened to me. And, you know, and I'm not depressed anymore. I got it scared out of me. Yeah. OK, but but maybe he is making a comment for the public good in that if. If folks were indeed as worried about this as it seems, you know, is he making a point that like, look, awful things are going to happen no matter what. You shouldn't waste your time worrying about them because it doesn't help. Yeah. As a, almost like a public service message. Yeah. I mean, and it's a great message. It's easy to get consumed by these things, especially your fears. And, and especially because, yeah, I mean, things are going to go wrong no matter what. They'll probably go wrong in a way you didn't expect. So if you sit around dwelling on one thing or another in particular, it's a waste of your time. Enjoy life. Breathe. Get some exercise. Yeah. Put it off as long as you can. Exactly. That is the end of Povember. I want to thank Mike Hughes for being our reader today. I hope he'll come back if he enjoyed it. Oh, Mike Hughes, thank you. Wonderful job. We've got him reading about some pretty dark stuff, so hopefully it doesn't bum him out. <laughs> I, I also want to thank uh, some of our patrons who are part of the team that makes this show. Oh, I love patrons. I'm just going to jump right into it. I want to thank David War. I want to thank Taylor Parisi. Desmond Merkwan. Duncan Norris. Jesse Green. I want to thank Deanna Hauser. K.O. I want to thank David Azaghetti. I want to thank Tim Vert. And I also want to thank Joaquin Mullen. Let's not forget Eric Grant. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for supporting the show, guys. We're so glad to have you listening. For the Christmas season, I believe we're going to be doing some Christmas ghost stories. Yeah. Uh, That's a popular thing in the UK, right? Reading ghost stories uh, around Christmas time. Yeah, so we're... We're going to go after that, get some classic ghost stories and read those. A Christmas Carol, one of the most famous Christmas stories of all time, is a ghost story. So, yes, of course, ghosts and Christmas go hand in hand together. And that's all we have for today. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. I'm Chris Lackey, and you've been listening to the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At hppodcraft.com. hppodcraft.com.